Hello and a very warm welcome to the Word Live podcast. My name is Nigel Bynan, I'm the director of Word Live, and I'm really pleased you've chosen to join us. This podcast is going to play out some of the great talks we've had at past events. We'll publish one each Monday and we really hope and pray that it will bless and encourage you. We're going to start with some talks by Vaughan Roberts on the book of Job. These are so helpful in how we handle the suffering we can experience and where we find God is in all of that. I hope that it helps you in your walk with the Lord. So here's a reading from Job and then Vaughan. Then Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I'm gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me a foreigner. They look on me as on a stranger. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I'm loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I'm nothing but skin and bones. I've escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yes, in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you say, how we will hound him, since the root of the trouble lies in him, you should fear the sword yourselves. For wrath will bring punishment by the sword. And then you will know that there is judgment. 
Thank you very much indeed. I'm hobbling a little bit this morning. Uh, I want to thank very much the two couples who saw me in my squash clothes yesterday and uh, said, uh, make sure you don't overdo it. Um, I should have read the deep concern in their eyes as they said that, and I, I reckon if I'd had the gift of interpretation, I'd have recognized that they were looking at me and thinking, what is that old man thinking that he's going to play squash at his age? I really should have listened, so thank you very much indeed. I've torn my calf muscle, and um, thank you for that uh, sympathy. It has happened once before. I was running at cricket about three years ago, and uh, suddenly... I felt as if I'd been shot. If anyone's had a calf muscle torn, it feels like you've been shot. And I just lay down in the middle of the pitch, and I, there was no one around me. I thought someone must have hit me. And uh, I was hobbling about a week later at a wedding, and I uh, got chatting to this man, and he told me he was uh, in the special forces. He'd just come back from Iraq and uh, had an interesting conversation. And he told me about, obviously, very difficult times he'd experienced. He said, excuse me, asking, I can't help noticing you're hobbling a little bit. What's happened? And I said, well, I was playing cricket, and I went for a run, and then suddenly I felt as if I'd been shot. And he paused and said, excuse me, sir, can I ask you, have you actually ever been shot? <laughs> so I, I decided I wouldn't use that image again. Let's pray, shall we, as we begin. Loving Father, thank you for the gift of faith. And we pray, please, you would bolster and strengthen our faith in this harsh, fallen world in which we live, that we might glorify you for Jesus' sake. Amen. A number of years ago, I remember looking on television at an advert for some jeans they were being marketed as especially hardy, and I can't quite remember all the details of the advert, but they were put through a whole series of tests, maybe put through uh, industrial machinery, trampled over by a herd of elephants, that kind of thing, and at the end of it, they were compared with other genes that had been put through the same treatment. And you guessed it, the other genes looked uh, in a terrible state, but rather suspiciously, our genes looked absolutely pristine, as good as new. And the clear message is, if you put our genes through any test, they will endure absolutely secure. Well, our question today, and I think the question that is really put by the whole of the book of Job, is how does true faith emerge when it's put through the mangle? And that question is really set up at the very beginning of the book of Job, Job 1 and 2. Do you remember that strange conversation going on in heaven? Satan's been roving the earth, looking for people to condemn. And God says, have you seen my servant Job? There's no one like him. And Satan says, oh no, he's just like all the rest. It's simply that you've given him lots of good things and, and therefore he's full of praise to you. But take the good things away and he'll curse you to your face. And God lets Satan attack Job. And there's one blow after another, after another. And in a matter of minutes, he loses his wealth, his children, and then a little bit later, he loses his health. And yet his faith remains remarkably intact. Those amazing words, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. 
And if you just read Job 1 and 2, you could get the impression that Job's faith under trial emerges pristine like those genes, unaffected. Now, if that's where Job ended, it would be profoundly discouraging. Because that's not me. And I guess it's not you either. We're not spiritual superheroes. Spiritual James Bonds who go through life suave and unruffled. It doesn't matter what happens to us. No, when we go through the mill, very often we are both shaken and stirred. Life is very tough. We get bruised and battered. And if Job was pristine and unruffled after those trials, we'd think, well, that's just not me. It's discouraging. And not only is it not me, it's not real. It's dissatisfying. We'd be thinking, wouldn't we, this couldn't really happen. Someone couldn't go through all those blows, one after the other, and emerge completely unruffled. But of course, Job doesn't end with chapter 2. And we discover from chapter 3 that Job is deeply affected by the trials that come his way. And so begins the long poetry section in the book of Job. We discover in chapter 3 that long lament that Job is deeply pained by what happens. He's confused. And so begins the dialogue between Job and his three friends, the so-called comforters. We looked at the comforters yesterday, and I hope we learned a cautionary tale, how not to do it. And we saw some of the mistakes that the comforters fell for. And we, I hope, began to realize how easy it is to do exactly the same. Let's not demonize these people. Very easy to do what they did. But they weren't comforting at all. They basically peddled the doctrine of moralism. Job's being punished for his sin. He must be because God is just. And justice demands that wrongdoing is punished. And so if someone's suffering, they must have sinned greatly. But we know that's not true. We know from Job 1 and 2 that he's a man of integrity. He's not suffering because of his sin. If anything, he's suffering because he's righteous. That's why Satan gets at him. Well, today we're going to look at Job's responses to the words that the comforters present to him. At the end of the book, we find that God commends Job and he condemns the comforters. So what does faith look like under pressure? We're going to see two marks of real faith in the face of suffering. And when you hear them, you might think they sound rather contradictory. Because here they are. First, anguished confusion. But second, resolute conviction. You might say, hang on, how can those two belong together? But they absolutely do belong together in Job, and they belong together very often in Christian people. The one doesn't cancel out the other. Let's look at them in turn. Much of the chapter, verses 1 to 22, is taken up with Job's anguish, confusion. The chapter before the one we just had read, chapter 18, is a speech by one of the so-called comforters, Bildad, and it's very grim. It's a chilling portrait of what it looks like to be under the judgment of God. You might say, here is a portrait of hell. 
chapter 18, verse 8. His feet thrust him into a net. He wanders into its mesh. Verse 18, he's driven from light into the realm of darkness and is banished from the world. Verse 21, surely, surely such is the dwelling of an evil man. Such is the place of one who does not know God. A place of darkness. This is hell. And the clear implication is that Job's facing it. That's what Bildad is saying. You're going to hell. You're facing hell already. You're under the judgment of God. And it must be what you deserve because you're such a terrible sinner. And then Job responds, chapter 19. And you'd have sensed the despair as if it was read to us just a moment ago. Verse 2, how long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. What he desperately needs is comfort. But all they can give him because of their rigid theological system is condemnation. No wonder he's frustrated with them. But he's not only frustrated with them. He's very frustrated with God. Verse 5. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. You say I'm getting what I deserve. I'm really not. God is mistreating me. This is not... Justice. Verse 7. Though I cry, violence! I get no response. The friends think to themselves, Job must have sinned greatly to suffer like this. And Job knows that's not true. So he cries out to God to speak up for him. But not a whisper not a whisper. C.S. Lewis, I quoted a couple of days ago, wrote a diary when his wife died. He wrote, of course, two books that engaged with the theme of suffering. One is called The Problem of Pain. It's a brilliant apologetic treatment of the issue of suffering. It's quite a philosophical work. It's very helpful, but very different from the much more personal book which came out of the diaries he wrote at the time after his wife, Joy, had died. It's called, as I said two days ago, A Grief Observed. It's very personal. One entry in his diary goes like this. Meanwhile, where is God? Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and the sound of bolting, and double, double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. Verse 7, though I cry, violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there's no justice. He's being attacked. And he's crying out, help someone, help! Help God! Not a whisper. Verse 8, 
He's blocked my way so that I cannot pass. He's shrouded my paths in darkness. He's trapped me in an alleyway at night. He's mugged me. That's what he's saying. God's the attacker. So what does faith look like under trial? Sometimes it looks like this. Now, it is gloriously true, and I hope many, many of us can say this from experience, that faith brings great comfort in difficult times. We'll think of that later. And I'm sure we can look back at times in the past when we thought, the fact that God's in control brings comfort to me. But it also sometimes brings confusion. If God's in control, why is he letting this happen? The fact that God is loving brings comfort to me, but sometimes it brings confusion. If he's really loving me, why is he letting this happen to me? Bob File has written a really helpful little book on the book of Job. He's called it this, How Does God Treat His Friends? And you might say, if God treats his friends like this, well, that's a very strange way of expressing friendship. It's a strange way of expressing love. It doesn't make sense sometimes. What we have here in Job chapter 19 is a very brutally honest description of the reality of suffering. We try often to put a brave face on it, don't we? Stiff up a lip and all that. And everyone goes away after talking to us, and they know what a hard time we're going through, and they say, oh, she's doing so well, she's so strong, what an inspiration he is. But very often behind the scenes, it looks very, very different, doesn't it? Marcel Marceau was a French mime artist, and in one of his sketches, he put on the mask of a clown, and he brilliantly performed being a clown, and then he, still in performance mode, as it were, went back into his dressing room and tried to take off the clown mask. And he brilliantly described and visualized the way in which he just couldn't get it off, and so he's writhing in agony, and the smile mask remains. That's what human beings are like sometimes, aren't they? There's an agony inside, and yet the smile remains on the outside. Oh, he's doing so well. What an inspiration. But you don't feel like it. Well, Job isn't British. He doesn't make huge efforts to hide how he's feeling. He doesn't disguise the tears. He speaks very, very vividly of the degradation of suffering. Look down at verse 9. He stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. Job, do you remember, was the greatest man in the whole of the East. And what's he now? He's a man on the rubbish tip, surviving off the scraps that he can find. How are the mighty fallen? And that's what suffering does. It diminishes, it demeans, it degrades. Muhammad Ali, in his day, was the greatest, as he never tired of reminding people. The heavyweight champion of the world, 
the strongest, most impressive man there was around. Now he's crippled by Parkinson's disease. I'll never forget watching the sports review of the year in, must have been 1999, just before the millennium. And there was a vote for the greatest sports personality of the century, or the decade, I can't remember what it was, and Muhammad Ali arrived to receive the prize. And there were pictures on the screen that showed him in his pomp, I am the greatest. And then he hobbled onto the stage. I can act this rather well today. His hands were shaking. The hand that a few years before produced the strongest fist around was shaking. When he was given the award, he could hardly hold on to it. That's what suffering does. It demeans, it diminishes, it degrades. I've often gone to hospital to visit people. People who, in their pomp, were great ones. Very distinguished in their fields. But in the hospital, all that's taken away. No one knows who they were. Just called by their Christian name. Dribbling, perhaps. Weak. You go to a nursing home. And they've lost their health, they've lost their dignity, they're losing their mind. This is really the story not just of Job, it's the story of humanity. He stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. Human beings made as the rulers of the universe with such dignity, but sin drags us down and suffering enters the world and we are diminished. It's the degradation of suffering. But he also describes the desolation of suffering. Verse 10. He tears me down on every side till I'm gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. Suffering doesn't just affect the present, does it? It affects the future as well. And Job is saying here, God hasn't just pruned my hopes. He hasn't just pruned my dreams. He's made a huge effort to uproot them, every single root, So there's no hope left. There are no dreams left. That's what he's done to me. We're not told what plans he had. Plans for the estate, maybe. Even greater expansion. Plans to hand it over to the next generation so he could just sit back and enjoy family life and enjoy retirement. For whatever plans and dreams they were, completely uprooted by those sufferings, And what about you? Maybe life was under control. Everything was set up nicely. You've met the man or the woman of your dreams. But then they lost interest. And they said, no, it's not going to work out. And the relationship had ended. Or the marriage ended. Or you met the man, the woman of your dreams. It was a very happy marriage. And then suddenly... Out of the blue, a stroke. And you begin to realize, from that moment, things have changed. And your lover, your friend, was now going to be your patient. Or the beginnings of 
signs that, uh, oh no, she's not quite herself, is she? She seems to be forgetting things, getting names muddled up. And then after a while, the family can't ignore it anymore. She goes and the diagnosis comes back and you realize you're losing her. And all those hopes, those dreams of what you're going to do for the next 20, 30 years, now everything's changed. That's what suffering does, the desolation of suffering. But then in most detailed form, he describes the isolation of suffering, verses 13 to 20. Verse 13, he's alienated me, my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. Joe's got no money anymore. And so all those who've been hanging on to get the handouts, they're not interested. He's no use to them. They've disappeared. Verse 15, my guests and my female servants count me a foreigner. They look upon me as a stranger. People who used to come around for dinner in the old days, they were glad to receive his hospitality. The housekeeper and the cook, they were very glad to receive the generous pay, but now he's got nothing, they're not interested. They see him on the street, they look straight through him. Verse 16, I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. Previously, he was a great one. He could just flick his fingers and any number of minions would come running. Now, even when he begs someone to help him, he's completely ignored. Verse 17, my breath is offensive to my wife. I'm loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me when I appear. They ridicule me. Oh, he was a great one once. But now he's a figure of fun. They bait him when he comes by. Suffering does this, doesn't it? It isolates. Sometimes people are cruel. You're at the supermarket queue and you can't do things as quickly as you used to. You're getting old or you've lost the ability to move quickly and people are tut-tutting and getting annoyed and you feel the hostility. At other times, they don't mean to be cruel at all. But it still isolates. They've heard of the bereavement. And they see you walking down the street and they think, oh no, what am I going to say? I can't exactly just say good morning because, well, it wouldn't be a good morning. She's just lost her husband. But then everyone must be saying, oh, I'm so sorry. And she probably wouldn't want that. And anyway, I wouldn't know what to say. So much better, oh, she probably hasn't seen me. I'll just cross the road. It's not meant cruelly, but many who've gone through hard times have found that people just keep their distance. They don't know how to respond. And those who are going through very hard times, how quickly they're forgotten. Again, it's not meant cruelly, but life goes on, doesn't it? And first, they visit in the hospital. They come and call around, anything we can do to help. But life has to go on, and the calls get less and less. Even when we're surrounded by people in the midst of suffering, it's possible to feel very isolated. 
Because whatever you're doing, you see everything through the prism of your pain. But everyone else is happy. They're not sharing that experience. They don't understand. Even the nicest, most sympathetic people don't understand. You can't blame them for that. But it's all you can think of. And you don't want to talk about it all the time because you don't want to be a killjoy. And so it's best just to keep quiet. And so you're relating, but you're not really relating. They don't see the real you because the real you can only see this huge darkness because of what's going on in your life. That's isolating. And so you begin to just fade into the background, keep quiet, or just keep away. Sometimes that feels easier. You go to church and everyone is smiley and happy and it's almost unbearable to remember that was you just a few weeks or a few months ago. The isolation of suffering. There's nowhere to turn but to God. But there's no comfort from him. He caused it, verse 12. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. You go camping in the countryside just to get away from it all. It's a lovely day. And the sound of the birds wake you up and you open the tent just to see the beautiful scenery outside and there surrounding you is the might of the US Army and all the tanks. And you think, what's, what's going on here? And Job is saying, that's what God has done to me. He sent all his forces against me. And so he goes back to his friends in desperation, verse 21. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. I don't deserve this, he's saying. God's hand has struck me. Strictly speaking, that's not true. Remember chapter 1, Satan says to God, oh, Job doesn't really love you. He just loves the things you give him. Strike, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and then he'll curse you to your face. Well, God doesn't stretch out his hand. God rather says to Satan, stretch out your hand. It's the same in Chapter 2, after the hand of Satan has been stretched out and, and taken away from Job everything he possessed, Satan comes back and says, oh yes, I know he's still trusting in you, but you haven't actually touched him yet. Stretch out your hand and attack his flesh and bones, then he'll curse you. And again, God says to Satan, very well, he's in your hand. Yes, God is sovereign. Everything that happens is under his control. But if you like, he stands behind good and evil in different ways, as it were, asymmetrically. There's a difference between his moral will, what he desires, and his permissive will, what he allows. He's sovereign over evil. Nothing happens without his permission, but he's not responsible for evil. Yet even when we know that, there's still questions, aren't there? Why, why, why? Do you remember the grid I suggested to you 
from a couple of days ago. There are some fixed points. God is absolutely holy. God is absolutely loving. God is absolutely sovereign. And somewhere between those fixed points, the answer to every question lies. But very often the Bible doesn't point us to that specific spot. It just gives us the grid. And the result is confusion. Sometimes anguished confusion. So here's Job shouting at God. Has he failed the test? He doesn't exactly look like a strong believer at this point, does he? And yet when you get to the end of the book, God makes it very clear. He's been commended. Yes, there are things he's got to learn. He is corrected, and we'll look at that tomorrow at the end of the book. But he's been commended. So brothers and sisters, if you've gone through a hard time, or if you're going through a hard time right now, and you feel like this, don't feel bad. Don't feel that somehow it's a terrible thing. It must be a sign of very weak faith if you experience confusion and anguish and anger. There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. It's because we fail to recognize the distinction that often we feel guilty when we go through times of doubt. And because we feel guilty, we don't share it with others, we're too ashamed to admit to it, and we don't receive the help that we desperately need. One writer put it like this, doubt is to faith what temptation is to sin, a test but not yet a surrender. Job has not surrendered. He's still a believer. Through his doubts and his confusions, he's still clinging to faith. And he doesn't bury his feelings. He brings them to God. C.S. Lewis, in that diary, after one particular entry, put these words. I wrote that last night. It was a yell rather than a thought. And what we've got here in Job's words in the middle of the book of Job are a series of yells. You might say they're not his considered thoughts. They're how he feels and he expresses them to God. And I'm very, very glad indeed that Job's yells are here in the Bible. Because this is what faith sometimes looks like under pressure. Anguished confusion. But that's not all. Verses 23 to 29, here's the other side. Alongside the anguished confusion comes second, resolute conviction. Job is longing for vindication. And he's really worried that he'll die before that vindication comes. And that at his grave, all the people who'll pass will agree with the verdict of the so-called comforters. And we'll say, oh yeah, it's Job. It's a shame because he was a great one once. But he sinned terribly. And God judged him. Took everything away. And now he's in the grave, dead. And he hates the thought that there'd be no vindication. And so verse 20, 23. Oh, that my words were recorded 
that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. If only my words protesting my innocence would not die with me. And then there'd be a permanent record of my defense against these charges. And of course the irony is what he wished for has come true. His words have survived many, many, many centuries. And he has been vindicated. Notice the very sudden change here. From the deep longing of verse 23, oh, that, to the great conviction of verse 25, I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. It's not the first time Joe's spoken like this. Just occasionally, there are glimmers of light in the very gloomy accounts of Job's thoughts at this time. We got something, just a glimmer, in chapter 9, verses 33 and 34. Job says, if only there was someone to mediate between us. Someone to bring us together. Someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. He's saying, in effect, if only there was an umpire, if only there was a referee who'd mediate and and bring us together and sort this out and make sure the rules are being kept, and as a result, I'd be vindicated, if only. There's no hint, really, at that point that he thinks it's going to happen. He's just saying, oh, I wish, I wish, I wish. But as you work through the book, the hope seems to grow. It comes much more clearly in chapter 16, verses 19 to 21. Even now, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God, on behalf of a man he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. Now it seems that fervent longing has become a hope that there is someone who'll speak up for him, a friend who'll present his point of view. So it's not just Job crying out, but there will be someone in the very presence of God speaking up for him. If not on earth, then in heaven. And then most clearly of all, verse 25 of chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. I know. The Redeemer in ancient Israel was normally a member of the family. The Redeemer was your champion who had an obligation to stand up for you when you were going through very difficult times. He would act on your behalf. He'd avenge your death if you were murdered. It was the responsibility of the kinsman Redeemer to do that. To protect you when you were under attack. To redeem you from slavery if you got into terrible debt. If you know the book of Ruth, you'll be familiar with the character of Boaz, who was the kinsman redeemer of Naomi and Ruth, both of whom were widows. And as widows, they needed protection. And it was Boaz who provided it for them. He gave Ruth a job at first. And then in the end, he married her and took her into his home. 
The Lord God is Israel's kinsman redeemer. He redeems her from slavery in Egypt. Job is saying, I'm sure I'm not alone. I feel very much alone. There doesn't seem to be anyone around me who's doing anything. Everyone's speaking against me, but I'm sure there is a redeemer who's alive. There is someone who'll come to my defense and will vindicate me. He lives, and in the end, he will stand on the earth. Literally, the dust, quite possibly referring to Job's grave. He'll take the stand and testify to Job's integrity. Even if he dies, he'll stand there and say, this is a righteous one. Well, who is this Redeemer? Verse 26. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. It seems that the Redeemer is God himself. The one who seems to be against him is the one who will defend him. Here is a wonderful declaration of faith. I know. I love that old hymn. I cannot tell. I cannot tell. Every verse begins in the same way. I cannot tell. I cannot tell. But in the middle of every verse, the switch, but this I know. But this I know. But this I know. That's the Christian life. It's very important that we seek to live on what you might call the Bible line of expectation. What the Bible says should be normal Christian living. And there's always a danger that we try and live above the line or we live under the line. Some try and live above the line and are claiming for now what's only been promised as of normal for the future. And it always leads to discouragement and disillusionment in the end or fantasy. There are others who live below the line not living in the light of all that has been promised for us in Christ now. No, we're to live on the line. Don't overestimate what we know now. We live by faith, not by sight. I cannot tell. I cannot tell. There are many things that we're confused about. That explains the anguished confusion that we sometimes feel in this present world. But don't live below the line. Don't underestimate what we can know. We can have resolute conviction in the midst of this fallen world. This I know. And if Job could be sure, we have much greater reason to be sure. On the 18th of June, 1815, the whole of this nation was on tenterhooks as it waited to hear what had happened at the decisive battle of Waterloo that was going to determine the fortunes of Great Britain for years to come. Well, in those days, of course, communication was very difficult. And the news was going to be relayed by a signal ship that would come and flash a message from the English Channel. That would be picked up on the coast. And then the nation would discover as the message was flashed from beacon to beacon across the land. The signal ship arrived. And the message was flashed and seen by the nearest lookout post. Wellington defeated, and then the fog came down. And the terrible news began to be flashed across the land. Wellington defeated, Wellington defeated. It was only a few minutes later when the fog lifted. Wellington 
defeated the French. It's a very different story, isn't it? And on that first Good Friday, it looked very much as if the message was, Jesus defeated. He looked as if he'd been beaten, as if Satan had won, as he hung there in agony and then gave up his last. But then the message came fully through. On that third day, Jesus defeated the grave. Just before Easter, I went to see and to hear Handel's Messiah again, which I absolutely love. And those who know Handel's Messiah will know that the wonderful setting and music that's been put to these great words, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Charles Jennings, Handel's librettist, then added underneath those words from the book of Job, I know that my Redeemer liveth, brilliantly, the great words from 1 Corinthians 15, straight afterwards. For now is Christ risen from the dead. If Job knew that his Redeemer lived, how much more sure can we? For Christ is risen from the dead. Yes, there's anguished confusion, but we can have resolute conviction. I love Romans 8. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Sometimes feels as if the world's against us. It certainly felt like that for Job. But if God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. And don't you think that the God who loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you is going to look after you? And even if all the circumstances in your life seem to be shouting at you, he doesn't care. He hates you. Remember, he sent his son to die for you. He loves you. He's on your side. And Paul continues, who will bring any charge against us? Job's friends brought many charges. Perhaps people get at us. Call yourself a Christian and you do that. Your God doesn't seem to like you very much, does he? Look at all the suffering you're going through. And there's the voice within that makes us feel so wretched, reminding us of sins that we committed maybe years ago, or the tut-tutting of others, and certainly the accusing voice of Satan. Do you really think God likes you? Do you really think he'll accept you after you've done that again? Didn't you say you'd never do that? You made a resolution. Now you've done it again. Oh, don't go slinking back to God. He won't listen to you but he will, because Christ died. He died for sins. He died for you, and he rose again. He's at God's right hand. He's interceding for you. And every time Satan, as it were, tries to shout, God, you can't accept that person, not after they've done that, the Lord Jesus stands up and says, Father, I died for that sin. Oh, I died for her. She's mine. She's mine. So who will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Why do you think Paul makes that long list in Romans 8? 
It wouldn't make any sense to mention all those things if he didn't think that they were realistic possibilities for Christians. Don't be sentimental. Don't believe the nonsense that, oh, because God is so loving, he'll never let bad things happen to us. The book of Job should tell you otherwise. It is perfectly possible that we might as believers face trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, and yet, in all these things, yes, in, not from, in all these things, we're more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Just before Christmas, my dad had blinding headaches and uh, was rushed to hospital, having been very fit and well. They did a scan, and the scan revealed he had a brain tumor. In hospital that night, he realized that it was very likely he was going to die. And that traumatized him. He was in great anxiety through the night. And then at some point in the night, he reminded himself, hang on, you're a Christian. He remembered John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And he said, well, I'm, I'm a believer. So that deals with death. I don't have to worry. I've got eternal life in Christ Jesus. And then he remembered Romans 8, verse 28. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, conforming them to his likeness. And he thought, hang on, if... John 3.16 deals with death. Romans 8.28, that deals with life. So what are you worried about? There have been hard days since. But he's got absolute rock-like conviction. I know. I know. I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand... In the earth, one day, Christ, our Redeemer, will come again. And he will, as it were, stand on our grave and raise us to life. And we will see him. Maybe now you find it hard at times to believe that God really cares. But on that day, there'll be no doubt. When Christ comes, in the blaze of his glory, all the darkness and the confusion and the pain of this present world will be banished. And in the meantime, in the midst of all the confusion, brothers and sisters, cling to that conviction. I know that my Redeemer lives and he will stand in the end on the earth. Let me pray. Father, help us to have such a deep conviction of the fact that Jesus Christ died and rose and will come again, that even when things are very confusing and very painful, we cling on to you. Give us such a faith that endures to the end, for your name's sake, amen. This talk was recorded at Word Alive 2016. Word Alive is here to serve the church in reaching the world. Our desire is to resource individuals and churches and empower them in their mission to communities and the wider world. 
For further information and to hear more talks from this and previous events, please visit our website at wordaliveevent.org.